The economy is a key issue for American voters. In July, more than 80% of registered voters polled by the Pew Research Center said the economy was the number one issue. Terrorism came in second. Today's show examines the country's workforce and what's influencing job creation and job loss. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. We'll feature three short discussions on the economy from the Washington Ideas Forum. First, Thomas Perez talks about what's working. He's U.S. Labor Secretary. The U.S. has lost 5 million manufacturing jobs since 2000, according to CNN. But Perez says the economy is in good shape. When Obama took office, seven people applied for every one job. Now, that rate is down to 1.4. Still, globalization has created winners and losers. A big part of the angst we see today is that, uh, you know, if you were in the textile industry down in the Carolinas, uh, that was an industry because of globalization where, you know, capital and labor could easily move uh, somewhere else. Later, we hear from Jeff Immelt. He's the CEO of General Electric. He gives a business leader's perspective of the American economy. We've created jobs. We're almost at full employment, but wages haven't grown with jobs. Our productivity stinks as a country. To be more productive and competitive, he thinks American companies should be involved in apprenticeship programs and community college courses. Finally, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, economics professor Laura Tyson, and Rana Faruhar of Time Magazine weigh in on the language used this election around economic issues. Isn't Donald Trump saying this economy is not working, it's not working for you uh, uh, workers? <laughs> that, that is we're not, not capitalism yeah. what he has practiced. Right. Okay. <laughs> At least in any kind of reasonable, reputable form that says you pay your bills, you honor your commitments, you don't go bankrupt every time, and you don't brag about the fact that you don't pay your fair share of taxes. First, U.S. Labor Secretary Thomas Perez. He's interviewed by Stephen Ratner, an economic analyst for MSNBC and contributing opinion writer to the New York Times. So Donald Trump talked a lot about the loss of jobs, and let's put aside his idea of how you solve the job, uh, solve the problem. But the fact is, we have lost huge numbers of manufacturing jobs. We've lost we lost something like um, nine, six million manufacturing jobs in the first nine years of the last decade. We gained a few back, a few hundred thousand, I think maybe 800,000, but they're starting to lose them again. So what part of his diagnosis of the problem is wrong, i.e. that this has to do with competition, fair or unfair, from places like Mexico and China? Where do you start on that question? Um, Where I mean, you left I, off. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to uh, answer the question in my official capacity, so I that's said why it's not I'm, political, it's about jobs. Yes, and... yes. Well, I mean, you look at, uh, I'm going to extrapolate beyond manufacturing. I mean, you, you look at where we were. Uh, when the president took over, this economy was hemorrhaging uh, 2.3 million jobs lost in the three months before he took office. Uh, the unemployment rate inching up toward 10%. The, um, there were seven job seekers for every job opening. Now you look, and we've had 70, 71 months in a row of job growth, uh, 14 million jobs. There's 1.4 job seekers for every job opening instead of uh, uh, seven job seekers for every job opening. And actually, in the last two years, we've, uh, where you see the biggest job growth, the two sectors, are both good middle-class sectors, business and professional services, education and health. By and large, the average uh, wage is doing well. Um, you know, manufacturing, I, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. The Bethlehem Steel of my youth and the Republic Steel of my youth employed tens of thousands of people. The Republic Steel plant is now replaced uh, by uh, what will be, when it opens up in a year or so, the largest solar panel manufacturing facility in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Solar City. Uh, so they're using the same footprint, but they will have far fewer workers because of technology. And so uh, you, you, you're going to see a lot more people walking around with iPads than, uh, and, and you go to any manufacturing facility of today, and that's what you see. So I think it's important when we have these conversations not to conflate a lot of different forces. There's, there's globalization, there's automation, 
uh, and, uh, and, and technology. And globalization has made uh, the world smaller. And I, th I think one of the things that's happened and is that it has um, you know, created some winners and losers, Steve. And I think sometimes policymakers are reluctant to acknowledge that there have been winners and losers. They think that we, everybody can benefit and nobody uh, loses. And I think a big part of the angst we see today is that uh, you know, if you were in the textile industry down in the Carolinas, uh, that was an industry because of globalization where you know, capital and labor could easily move uh, somewhere else. And so, you know, I, I think it's really, it's, it's difficult in a political cycle to have a rational conversation right. where you're kind of doing that uh, regression analysis to say, you know, this is really what's happening or that's really what's well, happening. Well, I'm trying to have a rational conversation, yeah. which is why you're here. Yeah. Um, but in textiles, we've lost, I think, 80% of yeah. our textile jobs from, uh, from when they peaked. But yes, there are going to be winners and losers. But in this case, you're talking about a whole segment of our economy, i.e. manufacturing, that many people believe is a, we need to be in. No mm -hmm. one would dispute your numbers on total jobs. Those are all obviously accurate. But nonetheless, at the moment, we are actually losing manufacturing jobs for this year so far, not gaining them. And so can we have an economy that simply doesn't have at its core some number of manufacturing oh, jobs? I, I think we can continue to make things. And, I, and I, again, the last year uh, begs the six years that preceded it where we were recovering, not at the pace of the 90s, but where we well, were actually, recovering, actually, you know, not, not the pace of the 80s. Right. But actually, as you know, the share of man, even during those six years, the share of manufacturing jobs mm -hmm. was dropping, i.e. the number of manufacturing jobs was increasing more slowly yeah. than these total number yeah. of jobs that you were well, referring to. Well, I mean, when you make products for export in the year 2016, uh, where you have global demand is not where it is because the rest of the world isn't doing as well as the United States is. And when you have a strong dollar, uh, that's a perfect storm for manufacturers. And so that is the challenge that we confront now. Uh, what, what, what I've seen in the export industry is, you know, export-related jobs on average pay about 18% more. And so you, you go to the, uh, the Boeing plant in Renton, Washington, where I've been, and uh, those are good middle-class jobs. And so that's why you know, trade-dependent states like Washington State, when you look at you know, their aggregate wages and their ag aggregate standard of living, they're actually doing uh, pretty darn well. Those are good middle class jobs, but as you know, a Boeing has been playing the state of Washington off against the state of South Carolina to try to get the workers mm -hmm. there to take uh, lower wages or smaller increases anyway. Uh, Mexico is now in the jet production business, China's in the jet production business, so even those jobs are under some degree of threat or pressure. Well, yes, and, and that's why, you know, the president's been talking about uh, obviously, trade is a, an elephant in the room, and it's a very hard topic to discuss during an election season. And uh, what, what the president's trying to do is put American values on, uh, on globalization. So if you have a country where the government is subsidizing the uh, aviation industry, you have an unlevel playing field. And so uh, you know, the, the, the reality that the president is trying to respond to is that you know, 90 for, 95 percent of uh, the demand for products is outside the United States. And in addition, uh, you know, we need to re reflect the reality that the status quo is an unlevel playing field for many workers and for many businesses. So how do we level the playing field in such a way that both the airline industry can compete and workers can compete. And that's what the president's trying to do. So in that context, when I was doing some background reading on you, I saw you quoted as implying that you thought that NAFTA was either badly negotiated or just a mistake. No, I mean, NAFTA was a lot of promises that were made that in reality were not kept. And, and let me be specific. NAFTA required uh, a country to comply with their own laws. And if your own laws in the labor context are Swiss cheese, that's not a very high bar. And so um, the question presented on the trade front is, do we accept the status quo, which in the case of NAFTA is a low bar or a no bar, or do we try to improve that? So, and so that's what the president uh, has been trying to do in TPP. As, as we speak right now, um, the Mexican Senate is debating uh, a series of constitutional 
and uh, statutory reforms to their labor justice system because as a practical matter, it is very hard for um, someone to organize an independent labor union. And when you go to their equivalent of the NLRB, um, it is broken. And so if you can build institutions that help raise the middle class in Mexico, uh, that actually has uh, ancillary and very real uh, positive benefit for folks back here. So can you learn from NAFTA is, I think, the question. Because NAFTA was promises made and in many cases not promises kept. So badly negotiated or... Well, or, it was uh, the state of the art okay, at the time. All right, it's, all right, I think enough. it's unfair to, with, with hindsight, say you should have done this and should have done that because we know 20 years later what worked and what didn't work. Okay. Um, let me move on to the question of jobs. And you talked about how many jobs have been created. Again, there's no disagreement about that. But as you know, we have a smaller percentage of prime age men, 25 to 54, mm -hmm. in the labor force here than in France. We have a smaller percentage of prime age women in the labor force here, or about the same as in Japan. The labor force participation rate, people who are looking for mm -hmm. work, is at, I think, 1977 level. Some of that's demographics and other factors. But how do you, A, do you agree that, that, that those are all the facts, and B, how, would, how do you address that problem? The, the labor force participation rate um, right now has inched up from where it was a year ago. Uh, I think it's about 62.8% now, it's about 624 a year ago. But having said that, uh, it, there's an undeniable movement downward. About 50% of that, according to economists, is uh, uh, demographics, demographics, people aging. There's about a quarter of it that people, frankly, disagree on. They don't know what it is. And then there's at least a quarter of it where public policy can make a difference. And I think there are three things that we could do, uh, Steve, that could really make a difference. Uh, number one, I'll do number one and number two together. Uh, and that is to have sensible paid leave and uh, child care laws at a federal level. Uh, one more piece of data. Thank you. Um, let, let me give you one more data point. Yeah, the, the female labor force participation rate, women between 25 and 54, in the U.S. and Canada in 2000 was virtually identical. Now Canada is about eight points higher. Everyone agrees that it's higher because they've invested in sensible paid leave laws at a federal level. So if we had simply kept pace with Canada, we'd have five and a half million more women in the workforce. I don't know what that translates to on labor force participation, but it's significant. And, uh, and similarly, I meet so many people uh, in my travels whose um, childcare bills exceed their rent or their mortgage. And so we have, we're living in a modern family world and we have these leave it a beaver, Ozzie and Harriet sets of public policy. So those are two things that we could do. And then the third, uh, very briefly, gets back really to your first question, which is infrastructure investment at scale. Because infrastructure investment creates jobs across many sectors and then has a multiplier effect. And I think that would dramatically uh, increase uh, labor force participation. The president tried his hardest to get how, infrastructure. How would infrastructure increase? I understand how it's good for the economy and productivity and all that. How does it increase labor force participation, the number of people who actually are, say they want to have a job? Well, I think right now, I think what, what, you know, we have so much demand for infrastructure, um, not just our roads and our bridges, but um, our, our pipes, you know, Flint right. is not an isolated incident. And so the, the more people that you employ in there, I think you have a multiplier effect. And certainly a number of economists have... Well, that uh, creates jobs, but does it bring people back in the labor force? For example, to your point about family leave, I think I'm right in saying that the percentage of, of unmarried men out of the labor force is actually higher than the percentage of married men out of the labor force. In other words, well, if you're married, you're more likely to stay in the labor force, you have a family to support. If you're unmarried, you're more likely to drop out of the labor force. So it's not necessarily a family leave issue or things like that. Well, I haven't looked at the distinctions between married and unmarried men and women. What I do know is that there are a lot more uh, dual career couples where actually the man is uh, you know, now staying right. home. Uh, still much more likely for the woman to stay home. And uh, I, meet, you know, I meet family after family uh, whose uh, very personal decisions about uh, child, how many children they have, are a function of our broken public policy. And, and, and you know, frankly, Wall Street and uh, the Silicon Valley and so many places around America would be far more gender diverse if we uh, invested in sensible paid leave laws at a federal level. And, and you know, we're the only nation on the planet 
the only industrialized nation on the planet that doesn't have some form of paid leave. And frankly, we're the only nation on the planet where paid leave is um, an ideological issue that has divided our parties. I think there's a lot of support here for yeah. paid leave. I, uh, I heard that. So let me move on to the, the other side of the, uh, of the employment question, which are wages. Mm -hmm. So as, as I'm sure you're going to say, wages have begun to go up after quite a number of years of dropping, but they are still below, uh, median family incomes are still well below their peak in 2000, well below where they were before the recession. Uh, certainly income inequality is greater, so for people at the bottom, wages are even more depressed. I'm not going to go back and through the whole manufacturing thing, but it's even worse in manufacturing in many ways than it is in services. So how do we address this wage problem and, and get middle-class people um, having incomes going up again? Well, one way to do it is to make sure we continue to have tighter labor markets. You know, in the, you look at the issue of uh, productivity and wage growth. From the end of World War II until about 1980, productivity and wage growth went hand in hand. So workers baked the pie of prosperity, they shared in the spoils. In 1980, uh, until really, with the exception of a uh, period in the late 90s, you, you saw the decoupling of productivity and wages. And uh, I think there are a number of forces. A number of economists uh, have looked at the issue of the decline of union density and say that almost a third of the challenges that folks in the middle class are confronting are the result of declining labor union density because when you have uh, strength in numbers, you have leverage. Uh, we have to continue our investments in um, our human capital. So how would you increase union membership? Well, I think you, you have all these, uh, there's an there's a unmitigated assault on um, labor unions across uh, a number of states. And you've, you've, there was a case that went before the Supreme Court uh, recently. And frankly, if Justice Scalia had not passed away, it would have really uh, made it very difficult for um, public sector labor unions to organize. And that would have been one step in uh, a very uh, transparent and well choreographed um, set of objectives from folks on the far right to eviscerate um, the labor movement. I think that's a bad thing. I think collective bargaining has been one of the biggest forces that helped bring us the middle class uh, in America. So I think there is a, I think there is a, a very important role in, for instance, who you choose to be on the Supreme Court in terms of uh, the, the right to, to organize. But we don't want to get into politics. Uh, although you have a lot well, of supporters here, so yes. if you want to run for well, office, I think they're all... No, but uh, I, all, I mean, uh, that, that's one, but that's certainly not yeah. the only thing. I, you know, for me, um, you know, my parents always taught me that education was the great equalizer. And you look at the unemployment rates by educational attainment, and there's an, un, there's an undeniable... Uh, education dividend and, and we sure, have but not... that takes a long time to fix right you have to wait for a whole cohort of people to go through no. the educational system you're not going to send a 50 year old person well, to college well actually my mother started college the same year I started college so I think education is lifelong and so um, uh, you know and, and here's what else I would say Stephen this is one of the things that is one of those few bipartisan things that's happening right now which is um, there's a universal recognition of the incredible power of apprenticeship. When, when people think of apprenticeship, they think of uh, you know, your plumber or your electrician. And, and certainly in the skilled trades, apprenticeship has a, a long and uh, storied history. But what we're doing as we build the skill superhighway for the 21st century is we're dramatically expanding apprenticeship expanding the reach of apprenticeship. So we're using it in the IT sector. The 5.8 million job openings that are out there right now, roughly a tenth are in the IT sector. And there are a substantial portion of those that don't require a college degree. And so you, I, I can take you to programs where someone's going to a 20-week coding camp and they're doubling their salary at the end of the day. Apprenticeship is the other college, except without the debt. And, uh, and so that's another example of, uh, I think, a, a series of targeted investments that we're making that we're seeing a real return on investment. Employers are, have much more skin in the game right now in, in the workforce context. They're, they're understanding that um, you can't have cannibalism as your HR model. You know, I'm going to steal your talent, and then you steal mine, and it's zero sum. There, there is a, a, a really exciting, it's not an A1 of the New York Times exciting, but it's a game-changing exciting 
metamorphosis occurring where sectors are coming together and saying, you know what, we need uh, more IT specialists. Let's work together on that. We need more um, allied health professionals. And these are jobs that are $30 an hour jobs. So rather than Hopkins going to the University of Maryland and stealing theirs, let's work together and uh, build tomorrow's talent. And it doesn't require a 20-year investment. You can retool folks overnight. Well, on that optimistic note, we're going to have to end. I hope you're right, and we wish you well, and thank you so much for being Great. here today. Pleasure to be here. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. You just heard a conversation featuring U.S. Labor Secretary Thomas Perez and MSNBC contributor Stephen Ratner. Next, General Electric CEO Jeff Immelt talks about what needs to change in our economy to create high-paying jobs. He's interviewed by Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. Let me ask you and start with the question that they should have discussed in the debate. It's sort of the most important economic question of our time, which is, how in America do we create $35 an hour jobs? So, you know, what I, I always, it's the most written about it's the most discussed, but most people that are writing about it or discussing it have never been to a factory or have never actually sat and thought about it. Uh, you know, we actually, as an industrial company, uh, have them inside our company. And the confluence of events that have to all come together is an immense commitment to research and development, an immense commitment to just basic science, uh, workforce training, an immense commitment to exporting and to having access to global markets, uh, the willingness to compete, so engineers and, and, and manufacturing people work together, tools of productivity, whether it's training or, or systems of productivity in the factory. And when you put all those together, when you put intellect, manufacturing skill, material science, infrastructure, training, uh, good regulations, good industry, uh, notion of exports, you can, we can do it. Now you we can, can be as competitive and we can be as productive as anybody in the world. Can we do it in uh, certain sectors better than others? In other words, you probably can't do it in appliances as well as you can things in engines. Things change over time, but I, I never cease to be amazed about two things. One is the, the, the way the rest of the world is actually now investing in wind turbines and, and MR scanners and CT scanners. So you see lots of growth around the world. And I think one of the things that gets undercovered or under, under uh, let's say not quite as well understood is the amount of manufacturing science that's going on today, which really gives you the ability to make anything you want more or less any place you want to do it. So I think the days of kind of wage arbitrage and things like that are more or less over. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you need to do something more with the American workforce, where we actually have jobs going begging now and people who want jobs, but there's that mismatch. Should that be a corporate American responsibility? Should that be community colleges? Should that be So what? I would say uh, when I was a part of President Obama's Jobs and Competitiveness Council. Mm -hmm. Did he listen to you? Um, well, we'll cover that as part of the debates or something like that. <laughs> sure he did. Um, but there were four things that really were essential. Uh, infrastructure, uh, focus on small business, regulatory reform, and training and education. Right. And as I travel the world, these four things are actually essential every place. I would say we're not making enough progress in this country on any of the four things. But from a training and education standpoint, I think that's a place where business can actually serve a common good. We need community colleges, but there's no reason why business shouldn't be on the hook to make sure we have a 21st century uh, workforce. And we clearly are doing that, not just for the people in GE, but our suppliers. We're investing back into community colleges. We have apprenticeship programs. We're doing it with veterans. And I think that's the place where business can be part of the common good. Tell me about some of those programs, especially the apprenticeship, not just investing in community colleges, but doing it yourself. So I was in uh, Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina, about uh, a month ago. We've got a great aviation factory. Uh, that's going in there. We're hiring 50 new people this year. Basically what they do is they work half time for us and they go to a community college, you know, four hours a day. Now, the way that they're hired, there's only one manager in the entire uh, factory. 
It's all empowered, self-directed teams. They kind of recruit each other. They kind of hire each other. So, so that's how somebody gets hired is by the team. And basically that goes on for two or three years. So they're essentially working half time for two or three years. And the other half of the time they're getting skills as it pertains to uh, how to work with machines, how to program computers, things like that. And then, you know, they, they join, maybe they earn in the low 20s and they have ways to get up to $30 an hour. Now, when you talk about programming machines, you've taken your company almost to become a digital company. Uh, is American manufacturing going to be a digital business? So I, I really think, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't kind of go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and say, we've got to be Microsoft or Oracle or something like that. We basically said, to be a good industrial company today, you need to understand the information that comes off your products. You need to understand how factories are going to be transformed. And we call that the industrial internet. And we're kind of all in. So this is maybe the biggest uh, generational thrust of certainly my career. And so I, I think the way you have to think about that is every industrial company is going to have to be software savvy, analytical savvy, and this whole new wave. You, you, you all are comfortable with the consumer internet, with Amazon, Google. There's a whole nother wave of the industrial internet that's going to be a big driver of growth. And the biggest challenge, Walter, today is, look, we're, we've created jobs. We're almost at full employment, but wages haven't grown with jobs. Our productivity stinks as a country. So basically we had three to 4% productivity for 30 years from 1980 to 2010. Our productivity now averages almost zero. So if you, if, if you wanna create these high value jobs, we've gotta be investing in the tools to drive more, more productivity. What? And they're always gonna include uh, humans as part of that, yeah. Why has productivity growth stalled? Look, I think it's a combination of things. I think business doesn't invest the way business can and should invest. And so if you think about the US economy today, the difference between 2% GDP growth or 3% GDP growth is capital investment by industry. That's just lagging. And the other one is, is we just, uh, there's too much regulation. Our infrastructure is not as good as it should be. So there's a governmental portion, there's a, there's a private sector portion, but both of them together have created a really sluggish economic uh, recovery. So let's unpack what you just said, too much regulation. Give me some examples, very specific, like aircraft engines, whatever it may be, that if you got in in your first 100 days, you'd order the person, get rid of these regulations. Oh, look, I, I think where business people get in trouble is uh, we, we kind of say, okay, here's my idea, do away with the EPA or something like that, right? That's not, yeah. we should have consistent high standards. But it takes 12 years to get a power line permitted across state lines. The touch time is six months, right? It takes eight years to get permitting to dig a deep water port. The, the actual touch time is a fraction of that. So there's no accountability. Let, let's, let's say the regulation should exist. There's no accountability for cycle time, speed, uh, uh, ways to get things through the system. And then, you know, there might be seven agencies where there could be one or two. So I would say complicated agencies, no accountability for cycle time, and then, and then I, I would go backwards and say, okay, if this is what we want to create, we want to create a high-paying factory job, what are the regulations we need, and which ones are really getting in the way about, about how uh, rail uh, sightings get, uh, get placed, about what the throughput can be in the factory. I, I still think that's a big uh, challenge in the U.S. It's gotten worse, and then if you compare uh, Texas to Connecticut, it's vastly different within the states inside the United States. By the way, is that why you moved away from Connecticut? You know, we wanted to get to a city. You know, at the end of the day, I think uh, for the company, we wanted to get into a place where there was a more of a, every day you could get up and be part of an academic setting. And so I think it was important to get to a city. Yeah, yeah. the Atlantic has written about that a lot. This amazing... 20-year transformation of America where uh, sort of the creative class and then... You know, I have to say it's real. I, I thought it was a little bit of BS uh, initially. I, I, I wasn't sure. And, and, you know, when I looked out the window when I was in Connecticut, it was beautiful, awesome, great office. But when I looked out my window, I saw nothing, nothing. Not, there was nothing going on. I could watch cars go on the highway, things like that. I've been in Boston now six weeks. You just walk out the door... You're, you're in the middle of an ecosystem 
that quite honestly, for a big company, it, it makes you afraid, right? You're, you're where the ideas are. You, you get more paranoid when you're doing that, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. So I thought it was, it, it was Only good. Only the paranoid survive. No, no, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, because you, you, when you're a big company, you can get hidden, but, but it's important that you're, you're, you're in touch with uh, what the next idea is or what the next disruption is. And so I'm, a, I'm kind of a big believer that that's kind of the way of the future. And one of the other things you said was infrastructure. In fact, you've mentioned it twice. Yeah. Why is it we haven't been able to have an infrastructure program like we did in the 50s and 60s? I think it's crazy. I, I, you look, interest, you know, there's cash on the sidelines. Earning. You've got basically $14 billion globally of government bonds earning negative interest rates, right? Uh, you've got all kinds of cash looking for yield. We have all this huge need for infrastructure. And I just think with a couple tools, I, I don't know if it's, you know, some people talk about an infrastructure bank, some, some people talk about credit support. The, the logic being that these are 10, 20, 30 year projects. They're hard to get, but, but this is one as a, uh, as a lifelong Republican, this is one that actually the Republicans get wrong when it comes to infrastructure. That, that actually this is one where this kind of investment, I think you, you win twice. You create jobs, but you also create a more competitive country that drives exports and productivity and all the things we think about. I was in uh, Africa two or three years ago doing a deal with one of the big entrepreneurs in Nigeria, uh, Aliko Dangote. We didn't conclude the deal. I said, let's talk over the weekend. He said, okay, I'll call you on the cell. And I said, hey, don't call me on my cell. I don't get cell coverage where I live. And he's in Lagos, right? So, so that's the... That's the paradox that we have. I said, here's my, here's my home phone. Call me on the landline because I've got very sporadic coverage, right? So Lagos to Connecticut, that's the, uh, that's the context. So I think this is one where... By the way, know, their airport is nicer than JFK. No, no, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a, it's a infrastructure matters. It is one of the things that creates competitiveness in jobs. And, you know, we're, we're not above number 18 and almost anything, whether it's broadband roads, ports, rail lines, the rest. You also talked about research and development, something that was much higher in the 50s and 60s, both corporately and in terms of government. What type of research and development are you doing and should we be doing? So we're maybe the last industrial company in the world that still does it, has a basic lab. We still have Edison's desk in a lab in Niskayuna, New York, where we have 2,000 PhDs and scientists that are working on material science and so we're a top 10 in the world in terms of patents. And we look at our competitive advantage as being able to do technology at scale. So we, we respect engineers, we respect science, we, we respect scientists, and we drive that across uh, the company. So we invest more in R&D, we continue to do it. We view that as part of our competitive advantage. I, I think the question really, Walter, is, uh, you know, we have so many budgetary issues do we dare give up on investing as a country? You know, and, and, and without making some choices, I think that would be a bad thing. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen the power of the NIH and what it's done mm. in, in, in the US. I've seen the power of the Department of Defense and what it's meant industrially. I've seen the power of our, we still have the finest universities in the world, bar none, but that's something you can't uh, take for granted, particularly given the budgetary challenges we have today. So I, I think, in the end, in order to compete, you have to invest. The, the thing that everybody in here should understand is if our productivity is zero, you know, it takes investment to get productivity growth. If productivity is zero, your destiny is low paying jobs. And it's, our productivity it's a, it's is basically zero as that, now. Right? Productivity is zero now, and some of that's because investment hasn't been forthcoming. And when you said investment, you snuck in a word that I think is really important, which is basic. In other words, you're not investing in let's make a new piece of software that'll do this. You're doing things without it having a utilitarian purpose that you know right away, but you'll think someday it so, pays off. Uh, you know, so we're launching what's called uh, the Leap engine. It's the biggest engine launch in our history. It goes on narrow-body aircraft. It is made in the United States. It is high-paying export jobs. The science that goes in that engine, that we're launching in that engine, we've been working on for 10 or 20 years. It's super lightweight uh, ceramics, it's super high heat. It's a miracle, it's amazing. But it's taken 
long-term investing to get to that, to get to that point. So when I talk about basic research, I'm not talking about hobbies. I'm really talking about placing bets for the purpose of creating long-term competitiveness. And you know, we're a generation ahead because we've been willing to do that. That's my view of a good business. Right? That's what Bell our Labs view, used to you do. You know what our view, when, whenever we're doing an acquisition, I always ask our team, how many, you know, how many people can do this? We like to do things that like three people can do. Those are good businesses. Now, the way you do that is you keep investing in technology. I, I heard Ernie talk about uh, additive manufacturing when I was out here, printing, printing parts. This is, we are absolutely committed to lead in the next generation of manufacturing technology. We're spending about three or $400 million a year. We just did two acquisitions. This is being able to kind of what's, what's called additive manufacturing. So now if you're, you're printing a, a, a high-tech part, you take a block of titanium, you carve it out, that's your part, everything's wasted. Mm -hmm. Now you can print it as one entire hull. It's amazing. And that, does that make it gonna, easier to do in the United States rather than offshore? Look, I think what it says is you, you, you basically say you can do this anywhere you want, mm -hmm. right? In, in other words, you, you can pay somebody a high wage to print a part. You can do it here. You can make the product here. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you need to do it in Indonesia or Mexico or any place else. Then it depends on how good your infrastructure is and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump has been railing about companies offshoring jobs, moving plants, moving factories, also against trade deals like TPP. Do you think there's going to be a problem if we withdraw from the globalization that's made a company so, like you? Uh, Here's how I describe it. So we're, I joined GE in 1982. We're 80% in the U.S. In 2016, we're 70% outside the United States. And this is because we've made investments. We've grown. Now, we're a $20 billion exporter. So other than Boeing, we're the second biggest exporter uh, in the U.S. So what I would say, Walter, from a, from a GE standpoint, from a multinational standpoint, um, you know, we're fine with or without the trade deals. We're so global. We've made so many investments, but the country is not fine if we don't do these uh, trade deals. I was just in Asia last week. I was in uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, you know, kind of bouncing on, on all Asian the TPP swing. countries, all the TPP countries. Um, you know, they they don't get it. And so what I would say is every you know, I've traveled the world my whole career. Every country on Earth believes in security and growth really those two things. Security is a geopolitical military discussion. I'm not qualified to talk about that. But growth is something that, that's what people in Malaysia want to talk to the US about. And if we don't do a trade deal, the loser is going to be whoever becomes president on November 9th. Because they will have no clout outside the United States in terms of how to negotiate, how to, how to drive partnerships, so I, for the country, you know, everybody wants to cast this as a fat cat, multinational gift, trade deals. I believe in free trade. Don't do this for GE. Do this for the presidency. Do this for the country. Do this so that we have relationships around the world that aren't, aren't just military-based. They're economic-based. And we're asking President Obama to fight with one hand tied behind his back against the Chinese or the Germans or any place else. So we've really, we've really miscast, I think, how important this argument is. Never forget, sitting in this room, 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's GDP. Hmm. If the world gets cut off to us, to us we're, we're a net loser, not a net winner. We've got a lot more to gain from all this and have gained a lot more than anybody else in the world. So I think this is for the country. I think this is for the presidency. I don't understand why, why Secretary Clinton and, and, and Donald Trump are, are not for this, and I think they're going to regret it uh, as, as you go forward. I think we are, this is one of those things that we are really going to regret as a country if we don't do it. And, and really, if Beijing, let's say we don't pass it, you know, they're going to launch an Asian trade initiative right on our heels and say, look, you, you, know, you can't count on the U.S. to do anything. Security and growth. We, we need both levers to be effective on the world stage. And we're taking, we've really taken President Obama, one of, one of the best levers we have, we've taken it out of our president's hands. And I, and I just, I just, I understand really, 
you know, I've walked more factories and, and spent more time with people than almost anybody in this room, I'd wager to say. I understand a little bit about what's on people's minds, and, and I get it, Walter, I really do. But we have a lot more to lose uh, by not going forward than we have to gain by being protected. By the way, up. we're not alone, guys. Every country in the world has this vibe uh, going on right now, so it's not just the U.S. But let me uh, follow up on what you just said about walking factory floors. Mm -hmm. So as we had 12 of your factory workers here, what would they be feeling now? Or were they part of this disgruntlement that we're seeing in the political not, Really not at all, because they're amazing, these people. You know, in other words, mm -hmm. If you walked a factory, you'd want more factory jobs. You'd be even more passionate about it because they know competitiveness. They know exports. They know mm -hmm. uh, uh, infrastructure. They, they, they know technology. They know productivity. And so I think what they, would, what they would be arguing for me is, hey, make the next investment here because that's job security. And what they'd be arguing to you is all the same things I talk about, infrastructure, about, about all the other things. And, you know, for us... We, we tell an export story because it's true. You know, in our case, it's not that every factory has been a winner, but most of our factories have been. And we've been able to, to kind of take the ones that have been impacted over time and get people to, to the right place because we can invest in training and things like that. One of the other things bubbling up, and you've been critical on Donald Trump on this issue, is the resentment of blacks, minorities, Hispanics, and that's sort of been fueled, it seems, by both the presidential candidate, you know, Donald Trump, but also by this fear we have. How do you address that? It's unacceptable. You know, in other words, I'm, I'm a, I, I love my country. I, I, I'm proud to be an American. My father worked for GE. I, I love the company that I work for. But what I was taught is uh, to treat people with respect. Uh, to not, to not, um, to not, to not uh, discriminate, uh, to actually engage globally. Look, I'm a, make no mistake, I'm a Republican. I don't want, uh, I don't want necessarily uh, four more years of a Democratic uh, administration as a philosophy, but as a human being and as a company, we don't uh, tolerate discrimination in any form. We don't, we don't believe in it and can't accept it. So that's and my final question to get you looking in far into the future. You talked about being a digital company, and you talked about what can happen when you manufacture things and gather the information and do databases. Do you see yourself in the future as being a big data company, and maybe even tie that into a product like an aircraft engine? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? You know, so again, I'm... The point I would make is it's, it's, this is, it's not like a choice I can make, you know, Walter. In other words, this is going to happen. This is going to happen with or without GE. So this new Leap engine, it might have 50 sensors on it. If you fly from D.C. to Chicago, that engine's going to create a terabyte of data, okay? Now, if we can improve the installed base of GE engines globally by 1%, that saves airline customers $3 billion, 1%, $3 billion. So we're going to be a data company no matter what. Uh, same way in healthcare. Same way, you know, a locomotive today is a rolling computer. It's taking continuous data about the track performance, the weather, uh, fuel performance, emissions. Uh, harnessing that data and turning it into productivity, this is our mission this is also going to be a $100 billion a year industry. And just like you've seen enterprise internet and consumer internet, there's going to be an industrial internet. And it's our plan to be a leader in that space. But it's going to happen uh, with or without us. You know, again, we started this six years ago. When we first started it, I had no idea what we were doing. None, right? I, I had like a third of an idea and, and, and said, okay, let's, let's see where this goes. Now I know it's a good idea. <laughs> The question I have to answer now is, are we good enough to do it? Now, in some ways, that's an easier question, right? Because you look in the mirror, you, can, you grab the team, but this is going to be a huge idea. Well, if I had to bet, you'd be good enough to do it. You've been called America's best and greatest CEO, but something more important, you seem to be the best at expressing our values. Thank you for being Thanks, here. Thanks, Walter. Thanks.
Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson speaking with Jeff Immel, the CEO of General Electric. Finally, a panel featuring a lawmaker, a journalist, and an academic weighs in on the U.S. economy. U.S. Senator Mark Werner of Virginia, economics professor Laura Tyson, and Rana Faruhar of Time Magazine are interviewed by Steve Clemens. He's with The Atlantic. Clemens begins with a question for Senator Warner. Why do you think that the economic equation we have today is coming undone? What are the zingers, the headlines of this for you? Here's last year and a half, obviously for all of us, it's been pretty frustrating in town or for that matter across the country. Gridlock, my concern is, as a big supporter of Hillary and Tim Kaine, that they will win, the Democrats will take back the Senate. But if we don't change the political narrative, are we really going to get things done? And I fear that the kind of underlying technology shifts, the underlying economic shifts, and candidly, as somebody who's been a business guy longer than a politician, I worry that modern American capitalism is not working for enough people at a fundamental level. And the extreme on the left and the extreme on the right scares the dickens out of me. And I think that is reflected in a a series of things that I hope we get a chance to talk about, a, a whole focus on short-termism as opposed to long-term value creation. We've seen that in the change in our stock market. I mean, there's never been a time when I've been involved in business when the average 10-year hold of a public stock has gone from eight years to four months, when companies are spending all their profits, public companies, on stock buybacks and dividends. The economy, I got very interested in the last year or so in the gig economy. Gig economy, on-demand economy, that's cool, it's still small. But a third of our workforce is in some level of contingent status right now. So the whole social contract we set up in the 1930s and 1940s, which was based upon long-term employment, they have none of those social contract benefits. So if you don't have a way that capitalism is working for you, and I think that is the issue of our time as somebody who has been isn't, lucky enough to be the pretty successful, isn't it, that we've got to make Don it work for everybody. Isn't that what Donald Trump is saying? Isn't Donald Trump saying this economy is not working, it's not working for you? Uh, uh, workers that, that is were not, not capitalism yeah. what he is practicing. Right. Okay. <laughs> At least in any kind of reasonable, reputable form that says you pay your bills, you honor your commitments, you don't go bankrupt every time, and you don't brag about the fact that you don't pay your fair share of taxes. Mm -hmm. That is not, <laughs> that's not a capitalism that's going to create. Yeah, that's not the future you know, And I say, I, that not, I say that not as I, a Democrat-Republican, but, but, but there's a chance here to get this right. There's a lot of folks on both sides who want to get this I right. I want to ask Laura why she didn't get this right when uh, oh uh, she was working for Bill Clinton and what was left. I mean, I'm just joking, but we, why didn't you get it? And we'll come in a minute. If you were to be president of the United States, Mark, and you were to change two or three quick things, short form, what would you do to shift the economic incentives in the direction you think they need to go? I'd create a portable benefit system to make sure that the first dollar anybody made anywhere, a part of that attaches to them and travels with them. Mm -hmm. I'd make sure that we change capital gains to incent longer-term hold and longer-term value creation, and I think there are a series of other corporate governance things we can do. And third is I'd realize there's absolutely, I heard Tom Perez, he's a great guy, he and I have you know, wrestled on a lot of issues together. I think it is great what we are doing inside the government on workforce training and apprenticeship programs. But ultimately, if we don't change the incentives so that it makes sense for a business to invest in upskilling and training people who make less than $75,000 a year, and there's no incentive now to get that right, I think we need to change it from a credit to a, a, a deduction to a credit that's worth more than a dollar, pay it out over a couple of years, even if the person moves, as long as they get a higher skill and higher pay, the company can still get some benefit. We need a radical, rep, a radical restructuring about how we make some of the incentives back on the labor side and not only on the capital side, and I say that as a proud capitalist. Thank you very much. Laura, I want to ask you, you were National Economic Advisor to Bill Clinton, yes. and you've played an ongoing role with President Obama, and I think you are are helping the uh, Clinton team now a bit. You've just heard Mark, and, and I just remember during the first Clinton period, the number of jobs were created that was kind of just-in-time money, just-in-time jobs, you know, everything that was like real trust in tomorrow, so people kind of, right. I mean, that was your era. What went wrong? What did you not see coming down? And do you agree with Mark that if you did these various things, they would be substantial shifts for the economy? Well, let me, let me start by agreeing with Mark, because he, he, he knows that, the senator knows that on the, on the, the things he listed, actually, I've been uh, right there. Actually, I started a couple of years ago when uh, 
when people were looking at the Thomas Piketty book, there was another very important book that came out called The Second Machine Age. Mm -hmm. The Second Machine Age was capturing the, the, the reality that the technology is not only taking out a lot of middle income jobs at a speed faster than we anticipated, but it's also causing this inequality. It's also causing this very rapid rise of the non-standard work arrangement. Mm. Th those things were not, the non-standard work arrangement was not a major factor of growth in the mid-1990s. Right. It was not. So we, did, we didn't see that. You've got to see that now when you're seeing <laughs> that is the future of work. That is the future of our society. We designed our entire social benefit structure around the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution where unions and government came together with union pressure right. and push and created a set of policies which really don't fit for an increasing number of workers, and that trend is just continuing. So, so I completely agree with, with the senator on his list of things to do. Uh, you know, to say why you miss something, it sounds defensive, and you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we, we actually did have a very strong economy during the period of the, of the Clinton one and Clinton two. We had, we used to say, and it was on record, the longest sustained expansion of the U.S. economy in peacetime. That was, mm -hmm. that was it. We had the entire income distribution from the lowest 10% to the top 10% growing together. We had them growing together at rates that were not dissimilar. The gap between the uh, growth of earnings and the growth of productivity was Okay, secretary. okay, I get okay. all the data. All right. So, um, but, yeah, but, he doesn't want data because he wants me to be snappy. Yeah, yeah. So the point is that a lot of things became and, and back clearer. in those days, facts actually mattered. Oh, <laughs> thanks. So, so I'm gonna, but before I jump to Rana, um, I'm done. But, 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 but Laura, you know, to, to play off that Lin-Manuel Miranda Hamilton musical, you were in the room when the room. Bob Reich and uh, uh, Robert was. Rubin were just slugging it out, you and, and President Clinton were there, and you know, to a certain degree, that was also not only a conversation about investing in workers and whether trade worked and building infrastructure, sure. I'll put that on the Bob Rice side, and Bob Rubin, globalization everywhere, constantly. So the, I guess the question, that in a way, there was also what, what, what Mark it's, just talked about, was short-term versus long-term no, battle back then. Uh, honestly, so, it wasn't. It I, wasn't? I, really, I really don't think what that's fair. Was, First of all, yeah. on this issue of in the, the room, in the room, in the room. <laughs> so I actually just had this conversation the other night uh -huh. with uh, Bob Woodward, his book, The Agenda. He basically has it in the room, and we're struggling over the, you know, these fun, we were not struggling over the future of capitalism. We were struggling over a budget allocation. We were struggling over what percentage of a certain amount of money, given the need to reduce the deficit, would go to infrastructure. Was that an essential struggle over the future of capitalism? No, it was not. I think the kinds of things we're talking about here, which is you're really going to reform the, in the social welfare system because it doesn't fit anymore. Hmm. So there were some important conversations going on in the Clinton administration. There was a first attempt, right. which didn't succeed, to move our healthcare system forward. We now have a healthcare reform, which is a step, many steps, in the right direction of the portable right. benefits we need. Okay, so it was recognized then that we needed portable benefits. We weren't able to move that forward. So I, I just want to say that it really, there were a recognition of some things, and there was, of course, at that time, uh, a real focus uh, on the need to do it in a fiscally responsible way. Okay. So one of the things that's not done by one of the candidates this time around is to say how any of these things will be paid for. These social benefit programs are not inexpensive. They are right. essential, they need to be changed. We have to fund them somehow. So for example, one view is that every single worker, regardless of whether they have a traditional employment contract or not, have to have withholding of social security from their income. Right. Have to, because we've got to get the funding going yep. into the social welfare systems. Got Rana, Faru thank you, F F uh, Faruhar has written a book. How many have you read uh, Makers and Takers? I have to go up a couple of them. They're right down here. Right. That's good. Right. So I want to um, encourage you. It's, it's a great now. book. Makers and Takers. 
uh, the rise of finance and the fall of American business, if I may paraphrase in my own terms what you're really writing about the end of days for the US economy, <laughs> right? So I have a solutions chapter yeah, at the end. Uh, you have a solutions chapter <laughs> at the end. It's really thin. You've heard, oh, you've, you've, you've heard Senator Warner. You've heard Laura Tyson. Uh, but I mean, in a serious sense, I mean, I yeah. want to get it because what we're really all talking about is a, I mean, we're, we're joking, but there's a, there's a fundamental mm. dysfunction, uh, dissonance in the system and real people are, 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 are scrambling every which way. I mean, I always find it interesting if you go out uh, uh, to rural Virginia, rural Maryland, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, you meet real people. This is not any joke or laughing matter. And so I'm just interested, you know, you, you yeah. indict the system. Yeah. And you, you said mm -hmm. that we have financialized gains and we've kind of screwed the real economy and real people. Yes. Am, I, am I wrong? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, actually that's right. Um, I, you know, my book is all about financialization and there's two factors in that. There's the growth of the financial sector as a percentage of the economy, which has almost tripled over 40 years, um, and the power that that gives one particular industry. So let me just throw out one set of statistics. The financial sector creates 4% of jobs in this country. It takes almost a quarter of all corporate profits, right? So that creates a kind of a Copernican turn towards this industry. That then creates some of the pressures that Senator Warner was talking about around short-termism. You've got companies uh, and CEOs who are under pressure quarter by quarter to please the markets rather than to you know, invest in R&D, worker training, all of that kind of stuff. But there's also a new dysfunction that has developed over the last 40 years, the financial system isn't doing what it was set up to do, right? So, you know, Adam Smith, father of uh, modern capitalism, imagined a financial system that was a catalyst for business, that was a helpmeet for business. Um, our deposits would go into banks, banks would lend those out to people that would create businesses and jobs and growth. One of the killer stats in my book, which comes from some really deep academic research um, uh, by a couple of very smart economists, is that today, only 15% of all the money flowing out of the largest U.S. financial institutions is being invested in business, okay? Mm -hmm. The rest of it is about the buying and selling of existing this, assets. Yes. This okay. is a fundamental shift. So we have, if you think about the, the whole ecosystem of capitalism that we're talking about, and you think about the financial system sitting at the center of it, that's, that's broken. That's so something that's very new. Elizabeth Warren is a hero to you. I think Elizabeth Warren's great. I mean, I think that it's great that she's out there demanding, uh, A, a narrative that average people can understand, and that's something that I get at in my book. I think that one thing that happened post-crisis is that there was a narrative that, you know, the experts know all these details, you know, big discussions about tier one capital ratios. I'm not saying that those aren't useful. So, Mark, is Elizabeth Warren a hero to you? Listen, and I work on a lot of stuff. We did a bill recently on derivatives. But I mean, does what but, she represent represent the kind of capitalism believe, you want? I believe at the end of the day, you've got to have business incentives that create long-term value. I believe at the end of the day, there are functions for government, but there are functions that business ought to have in terms of particularly investing in low and moderate income people that, that they're just not the right incentives in, in place at this point. Mm -hmm. I do worry. Mm -hmm. as somebody who was a pretty successful capitalist with some of the stats that come out of Ronna's book. I do worry about the fact that, you know, 30 years ago, 50% of corporate profits went back into the business and now 95% are in share yeah. buyback and dividends. Yeah. And the theory that that is just the market's efficient reallocation of capital, I don't fully buy. We've right. never seen that but before. Right. Can I raise one other thing here? Because I, I do think uh, that we need to... I, I want to add that... the another perspective. It's in addition to uh, the lack of investment by the business community. And I want to start by putting it in international context. Investment rates around the world are down from the, what they were prior to the crisis, the great financial crisis. It doesn't matter what kind of financial system you have, business investment is down. The, one of the major reasons, independent of the financial system and the incentives, is the basic incentive for businesses to invest is expected future growth of demand. So mm. the, a fundamental problem with capitalism, and I think I heard Secretary Perez say this, in the, in the form that we now are living it, is that the generation of demand is dependent on 
the sharing of the benefits more broadly. So as income has become more unequal and as the middle class has actually been undermined in terms they of its spending stuff. power, they can't buy stuff. So now technological revolutions usually, technological revolutions usually lead to productivity gains. Those are usually broadly shared. That leads to an increase in demand and new goods and services. So is it time so for Marx? So and we don't, I, we, we, <laughs> I'm just Marx saying. Marx has been trending on Google since what, 2008. Yeah. But what I, what so I, I want to just add the yeah. demand income inequality aspect to this. It's not and, and just the, there are additional. I think there's a role, there and here's where I might differ with some, some in, my, in, in my party. There's a role for government regulation. Yeah. There's a role for government redistribution programs. I'm not sure, though, government that unfortunately still has most of their program in a multi-app world, mm -hmm. government still applies programs in a single, single form. And I don't think a government-only solution is going to work. No. I do think shifting no. the incentives mm -hmm. around tax, around credits, frankly, around reinforcing more responsible business behavior. I'm really intrigued with these efforts like Mike Bloomberg, SASB, and right. the B Corp, yeah. and Just Capital, Inclusive Capitalism. I think millennials, I'm betting on mm. millennials that they will vote with their dollars and their lives in wanting to work for more responsible businesses. Because if, if we investors don't have that kind of so real, real quickly, as you know, we're, investors we're, are Laura, doing we're that real, now. Okay. We're, real, mm -hmm. it, we're seven and a half years into the Obama administration, um, and I'm just interested in whether you, or not, particularly after the 0809 financial crisis, when the president had more power to kind of redesign the social contract and help it, was that a fail that uh, the emphasis was? significantly on bailing I, out the financial no, I, I, I would, let me say, yeah. I think the president didn't get all the credit and I think history will treat him. I think yeah. it will actually give uh, the end of the Bush period in terms of the kind of so all hands blame. on deck. No, no, I think this yeah. was a, the, there were lots of blame earlier, but we don't have time in the four minutes right. left to relitigate that. <laughs> mm. But they were trying to, the house is burning down, how do you put out exactly. the flame? Exactly. And that you wouldn't have even had a house. I got nothing against act activist investors had an appropriate role shaking up shaky, sleepy so, companies. You don't want Japan. But when every company now is doing some of the activities that is not a, for long-term right. value creation, and the first thing that you cut in an age of technology is that disposable person. When you just think for a moment, you buy a yeah, piece of equipment, cool. that's an asset. You invest in a human being, that's a cost. So just Mark, from even our fundamental accounting principles. You just principles. gave us three proposals on things you can do. And you know what I dislike about events like this sometimes is a lot of platitudes get thrown out, a lot of great ideas, nobody's held accountable mm. for them. I mean, actually, we're more accountable because we you know, want to do that. But if you were to rewrite that social contract, look so that five years from now, we've come back and looking back, do you, one, is your plan workable? Is there, is, is there a sense among your colleagues that they would move but on some of these? There is a lot more yeah. self-awareness in the Senate than I think we get credit that we candidly acknowledge we deserve our 8% approval ratings. Mm. There's a lot of folks in both parties that want to get things done, but we got to change the narrative a little bit. The idea of saying we're going to have a social contract that works for everybody in the 21st century, mm. is that Democrat or Republican? Mm. If the idea of saying we want to make capitalism work for all Americans again, which in some ways may mean you have a less need for government in certain places, there's a whole lot of Republicans that would sign up to that. Yeah, they would. And the idea that if we don't change the narrative, with this moment in time, hopefully after this election, and that we're just gonna continue along slogging with the existing battles, that is not a good business plan for our country. You know, can I just tell you one yeah, thing sure. too? I totally agree with that. You know, one thing that's been fascinating to me, putting my book out there, I thought I was gonna get calls from a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs saying, yay, somebody's finally sticking up for us, we're under so much pressure from the street. Not no, at all. No. But you know who has been calling? A lot of enlightened financiers, hmm. because they're actually worried about how this is gonna affect their portfolio portfolios. We are entering a period in which growth might be a lot slower. And by the way, there's a looming pension crisis. And if we think that we've seen populism now, just wait until people realize yeah. they're not going to get 8%. Amen. They may not get 4% in their pension S funds. So one of the positives here would be, it, it, you mentioned it, Sasby, you're mentioning it in terms of who's calling you. There really is a growing pool of money out there interested in this kind of investment. So basically, uh, you have a growth of mutual funds and assets where investors are going to and saying what's the environmental return what's the social return how does the governance work what's the fairness of pay what's the what's the metric 
of good performance long-term. And the long-termism and the environmental, social, and governance are really one and the same thing. I mean, Larry Fink, and among others... Long-termism yeah, yeah. doesn't mean yeah. you've got to okay. be the Japanese no, economy. No, right. So the, the point is, right now, something like one out of every six dollars under professional money management in the United States is going into environmental, sustainable, and governance. And why is it? Because there's a growing pool of investors who want to do that. And that's why, and there's a growing pool of investors who want to associate themselves with B Corps and consumers. And I, I met with a, a bunch of B Corps the other day and I said, why do you do this? Why do you take this on? This is a, a risky new form of organization. They say because it attracts consumers and it attracts investors. So the good news here is maybe we don't even have to mandate some of this. We, no, we change sure. no, the incentives, we yeah. change the incentives, yeah. we change the structures a little bit, and I think there's a growing pool of investors, and you've heard from them, yeah. who actually want the financial system to behave differently. And yeah. that will put pressure on the companies to behave differently because it's their source of finance. And, but Steve, it starts with a different narrative and a new right. coalition. Right. If, you know, Hillary wins, we may get infrastructure done. We may start on international tax reform, but it, there ought to be some understanding. I say this is a pro-trade guy. We've got to acknowledge the pro-trade guy. Trade has benefited normally major metropolitan areas. It's totally hosed a lot of rural exactly, communities. Yes. And we have done an awful job, a awful job helping those communities that have been left behind. Mm -hmm. So there ought to be a deal that says, if you're going to be a beneficiary from trade, at least your supply chain jobs ought to be some of those communities that have been left so behind. So we're, we're right at the end, and mm -hmm. I want to thank um, the three of you. And, and just before you started, Mark, when you opened with uh, this notion that if, if, if Tim Kaine and Hillary Clinton come into office and come in, it would be a real travesty if this weren't done. Do you have a worry that your own team, the people leading your own ticket, don't get it? No, I think they no. get it. But I think it's going to take, candidly at this point, a bipartisan group of folks, yeah. hopefully to. coming out of where I work, have to. that's willing to step up and say, yeah. we're in on a new frame on about how we address some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Because if we simply change some of the players and relitigate what has been litigated for the last seven or eight years, we could be back again where what, what the biggest applause line is, we didn't shut down the government. And the country's too good for that. <laughs> right. Thank you, Laura Tyson, Rana Faruhar, and Senator Mark we Warner. Thank you That's U.S. Senator from Virginia, Mark Warner, Berkeley economics professor Laura Tyson, and Rana Faruhar, the assistant managing editor of Time magazine. They were interviewed by Steve Clemens of The Atlantic. All of today's conversations were part of the Washington Ideas Forum, a week-long event presented by The Atlantic in partnership with the Aspen Institute. The conversations took place at the end of September. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for joining me.